Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson, that are currently taking place at the same time on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Courts Building in downtown Los Angeles. Two times per week, on Mondays and Thursdays, you will hear new episodes with reports from journalists who are in the courtrooms as these trials are happening. On today's installment, we hear the latest on witness testimony from our correspondents who are inside the courtroom for both these trials. That's all coming up right after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We begin today's installment with Brittany Bookbinder and her look at witness questioning in the Los Angeles trial of Danny Masterson. On the morning of Thursday, November 3rd, Detective Esther Reyes, whose married name is Esther Mayape, took the stand. For the purposes of clarity, I will refer to her as Detective Reyes in our coverage. Detective Reyes was the lead detective on the case against Danny Masterson starting in December of 2016. She was questioned on direct examination by Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller. Reyes first became involved in the case after Jane Doe III, Masterson's ex-girlfriend, reported her assault to the Austin PD in Austin, Texas, where she was living at the time. Since it was a high-profile allegation, the case was turned over to the Special Assault Division within LAPD Robbery Homicide. Of the three victims in this case, Reyes spoke with Jane Doe III first and could not remember whether she read Jane Doe I's 2004 LAPD report before that interview. Within the next month, Reyes, along with her partner, also conducted interviews of Jane Doe I, the friend of Masterson who went to his house to pick up a set of keys, and Jane Doe II, the woman who described Masterson's verbal and physical treatment of her as predatory. Mueller first questioned Reyes about the statements made by all of the Jane Doe's, starting with Jane Doe 3. Again, this is Masterson's ex-girlfriend. Reyes recalled that Jane Doe 3 told her about a pattern of abuse in her relationship with Masterson, indicating that Masterson would demand sex every day and physically abuse her and yell at her if she refused. When Mueller asked in what way Masterson had abused Jane Doe 3, Reyes recalled an incident in which Masterson lay on top of her in bed and forcibly had sex with her, presumably referring to the count of rape in this case. Reyes began to recount another incident, which has become known as the, quote, unconscious sodomy incident, but Mueller stopped her and asked about the abuse in a more general sense. Reyes described the hair pulling, spitting, and verbal abuse that Jane Doe 3 described. Then, when Mueller asked about a particular incident that Jane Doe 3 reported, Reyes detailed the December 2001 unconscious sodomy incident, which, as the defense has stated repeatedly, is not a count in this case. Mueller then asked if Reyes knew about the nature of Jane Doe 3's relationship with Masterson before the abuse started. Reyes indicated that it wasn't in her report, and that it was probably in the recording of her interview. Often, during direct examination, Detective Reyes indicated that she didn't remember particular details and that they weren't captured in her report. 
Several times, Mueller offered to show her a transcript of her recorded interviews. At one point, he asked if Reyes had had a chance to listen to that recording, and she indicated that she had not. In the instances where particular details could be found in Reyes's written report, Reyes sometimes indicated that she had paraphrased what the victim had told her. Notably, she testified that Jane Doe 1, the friend of Masterson's who came to his house to pick up a set of keys, told Reyes that Masterson carried her to his bed, sexually assaulted her, strangled her, and at one time pointed a gun at her. Mueller asked if Jane Doe 1 said that Masterson pointed a gun at her. Reyes indicated that she was paraphrasing, but did remember that Jane Doe 1 said that when she reached into the nightstand, Masterson slammed her hand in the drawer, and that Masterson put the gun back into the nightstand. Toward the end of direct examination, Mueller asked Detective Reyes about the dedicated phone lines for pretext calls, calls where victims can record their conversations with witnesses. Reyes testified that she set up those phone lines and that she instructed the victims to call Masterson and other witnesses on the recorded lines. Reyes also testified that, at another time, she instructed the victims not to be in touch with witnesses in order to protect the integrity of the case. Finally, Reyes indicated that all three Jane Doe's had been experiencing stalking and harassment. Defense attorney Philip Cohen started cross-examination, but was not able to finish questioning the detective as she had a scheduling conflict and had to leave early. Cohen asked Reyes about her preparation for giving testimony in this case. Reyes stated that the prosecution had not asked her to review the transcript of her interviews with Jane Doe's 1, 2, and 3, as prosecutors sometimes do. Cohen asked, if you had reviewed the actual transcript, fair to say it would help take away from what we just observed about you having to guess, having to speculate what these women said? Reyes responded yes. He then asked whether, on the instances where she did paraphrase or speculate on exact statements made by the victims, whether she was trying to be fair to both sides. She said yes and further testified that she was trying to be fair to what the women had actually said. Regarding the instances where Reyes indicated she had paraphrased, Cohen showed her the transcript of her conversation with Jane Doe 1. Reyes confirmed that, in fact, she had not paraphrased. Rather, the transcript indicated that Jane Doe 1 had told her that Masterson pointed a gun at her during the incident. Cohen asked why she indicated that she was paraphrasing on direct. Reyes responded, quote, I thought he meant about the whole incident in general, end quote. Cohen then moved on to a subject he foreshadowed in his opening statement, the idea of cross-contamination, meaning victims speaking with each other about the details of their allegations. Through a flurry of objections from the prosecution, Cohen managed to ask Reyes if cross-contamination had been a concern of hers and whether she had articulated that to the victims. Reyes said yes on both counts. She further testified that it would be problematic for the victims to share information with each other and the media. After lunch, Cohen asked Reyes about the report she received from Austin PD pertaining to Jane Doe 3. She indicated that the report included the December 2001 unconscious sodomy. He then returned to the idea of cross-contamination and the victim's cooperation in this case. Reyes testified that she was aware that all three Jane Doe's had spoken with each other before Reyes spoke to them in late 2016. Cohen asked whether Reyes had admonished the victims the following month about not having communication with each other or witnesses. Reyes had to look at the transcript. Cohen then asked what, specifically, Reyes had said to Jane Doe 1. Reyes stated that she told Jane Doe 1 that speaking to other victims would, quote, contaminate the case, end quote. Although Cohen's strategy seemed to be blaming the prosecution for Detective Reyes's confusing testimony, he also appeared to take shots at her investigation. He asked if Reyes had ever compared her interview notes to the summary of the interviews that the Jane Doe's had with Deputy DA Mueller. She said no. 
Before he could continue with this line of questioning, Detective Reyes had to leave. She is expected to return this week. On Thursday afternoon, the jury heard from two witnesses to whom Jane Doe II disclosed the 2003 incident shortly after it happened. First, Jordan Ladd, the best friend of Jane Doe II, was questioned by Deputy DA Ariel Anson. Ladd first met Jane Doe II on the set of Never Been Kissed in 1998. By 2001, the two would become best friends. Ladd testified about a conversation she had with Jane Doe II in late 2003 following the incident with Masterson. She stated that, during their conversation, Jane Doe II appeared shaken. She said that Jane Doe II was, quote, nervous to tell me. She said that she had sex with Danny, that she kept saying no, and I don't want to do this, and please stop, over and over again, end quote. She recalled that Jane Doe II mentioned that Masterson had provided her with a drink and couldn't recall whether Jane Doe II said she drank it. Ladd testified that, between 2014 and 2017, she and Jane Doe II did not speak. Then, in 2017, when Ladd saw a headline about Masterson, she reached out to Jane Doe II via text, indicating that she remembered their conversation. At that time, Jane Doe II did not remember that she had told Ladd about the incident. Following that text exchange, Ladd reached out to the LAPD via email. She recalled that she did not hear back promptly, and she testified that she made a number of attempts to speak with law enforcement. Finally, Ladd indicated that she and Jane Doe II had a falling out in 2019 and haven't spoken since. She testified that she has not spoken about the facts of the case with Jane Doe II. Curiously, Anson did not ask Ladd why she was testifying, given the fact that the two are no longer friends. On cross-examination, Cohen showed Ladd the email she sent to the LAPD in 2017, noting that it was sent directly to Detective Reyes. He asked whether Jane Doe II provided Reyes's email. Ladd responded, quote, it's possible, end quote. Regarding the delay in hearing back from the LAPD, Cohen asked if Ladd had given a statement shortly after that email. She couldn't remember. He showed her a transcript indicating that her report was given three days after the email was sent. He then asked about some of the details that Jane Doe II had provided during her testimony. For the most part, Ladd testified that Jane Doe II had not told her the details of the alleged assault. On redirect, Anson was able to elicit from Ladd that her 2003 conversation with Jane Doe II lasted only about three minutes. Ladd testified that Jane Doe II told her that Masterson had penetrated her and that she did not want him to do so, but he kept going. She further testified that she believed Jane Doe II's concern about Masterson wearing a condom was not the main concern, but rather, quote, an afterthought, end quote. Regarding conversations she's had with Jane Doe II after 2017, Ladd testified that Reyes told her she could speak with Jane Doe II, just not about the case. She confirmed that she has followed instructions and has not spoken with Jane Doe II about her allegation. Next, Joanne Berger, Jane Doe II's mother, took the stand. Although Jane Doe II recalled that she spoke with her mother about the incident within a few weeks, Berger recalled that her daughter disclosed the incident to her only a day or two after it happened. Berger testified that she was not clear on all the details from 20 years ago, but several things from their conversations stood out. Quote, I never forgot them, end quote. She recalled that Jane Doe II said that Masterson was, quote, coming at her from behind, like a jackhammer, and relentlessly, and that it was very painful, and that she told him to stop, and he didn't stop, and that she threw up in her mouth, end quote. She recalled that her daughter did not use the word rape. On cross-examination, Cohen tried to demonstrate that Berger's memory had been tainted by conversations she had with her daughter after the initial disclosure. He asked if she had told Detective Vargas, the detective who took over the investigation from Detective Reyes in March of 2017, that she had spoken with her daughter the day before their interview. Berger indicated that she did not remember making that statement. 
He showed her a transcript of her interview with Detective Vargas, but Berger maintained that she didn't remember telling him that. Cohen also tried to discredit Berger by asking if she loves her daughter, the implication being that she's more interested in helping her daughter's case than being fair to both sides. He then asked whether she had told Detective Vargas, quote, there's been so much talk that it's hard to separate out what I heard recently from what happened, end quote. Berger responded yes, quote, because when the women were going to press for charges, it was all brought up and there was a lot of talk. So separating that out from my first phone call, it's a little hard, end quote. He then asked about her use of the word rape to describe the incident and how she hadn't labeled it as rape until the last couple of years. Berger indicated that she wanted to explain her reasoning for making that statement, but Cohen forged ahead, asking her about an email she sent to prosecutors about, quote, some new things, end quote, that she just remembered today. She said she sent the email in the last few days. He asked when Jane Doe 2 testified, and she responded yesterday, the implication being that Berger had spoken with her daughter about her testimony. On redirect, Berger testified that she had not spoken with her daughter about her testimony. Anson also asked why she changed her mind about labeling the incident as rape. Berger explained, quote, That's because I had a fairly old-fashioned idea about rape. I thought it was when someone held a gun to your head or a knife to your throat, and if you didn't cooperate, you were literally going to die. I realized later that that's not necessarily what constitutes rape and that it's about consent. But in those days, I didn't know that. That's why I didn't have the idea it was rape. There were no weapons involved and no extreme violence, and I mean extreme, and that's why I didn't question it, end quote. With that, Berger was dismissed. In our next episode, we'll cover the return of Detective Reyes to the stand, as well as testimony from a witness who asserts that both Jane Doe 2 and Jane Doe 3 told her of their alleged assaults by Masterson. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now with her review of recent witness testimony in the L.A. trial of Harvey Weinstein, here is Molly Miller. Last week, we covered the emotional direct examination of Jane Doe 3, the celebrity masseuse who alleges Weinstein sexually assaulted her in 2010. We previously heard from Jane Doe 1, the Italian model and talk show host who alleges that Weinstein sexually assaulted her during the L.A. Italia Film Festival. In our next episode, we will hear testimony from Jane Doe 2, a model and aspiring screenwriter who alleges that Weinstein sexually assaulted her after a business meeting. Today, we pick back up with Jane Doe 3 on cross-examination by defense counsel Mark Worksman. The defense drilled down on a few major parts of Jane Doe 3's testimony, starting with the state of her memory. In her first interview with police, the woman said that she sometimes had difficulty distinguishing between what was reality and what was not. She also stated, quote, everything that happened is just a big blur now, end quote. Worksman inquired how it was that Jane Doe 3 came to recall her memories about the alleged assault. She responded confidently that she was able to recover hidden memories through the help of therapy and speaking with her friends about the trauma. 
Worksman latched onto Jane Doe 3's statement. He asked, quote, If a memory is hidden from you and you recover it, how can you tell if it's what really happened or what you wish happened? End quote. Jane Doe 3 took a deep breath and said, quote, It's a good question. End quote. She said she was uncertain how to answer it. Worksman continued to cross-examine the woman regarding the therapy she received. He asked repeatedly if she underwent hypnotherapy in order to retrieve lost memories. Jane Doe 3 testified that she did not do hypnotherapy, but she did take part in an emotional intelligence workshop that lasted for several months and saw a somatic healer, which she described as someone who works with energy modalities. The defense attorney also attempted to spotlight an inconsistency in Jane Doe 3's statements about the 2010 alleged assault that he called the massage from hell. He drew her attention to the first interview that she had with Deputy District Attorney Paul Thompson in October of 2019. In that meeting, Jane Doe 3 told the DDA that Weinstein groped her breasts over her shirt. But in a subsequent interview, in March of 2020, the woman recalled that Weinstein grabbed her breast under her shirt and that his grip left red marks on her skin. The distinction was legally important because in California, sexual battery is a wobbler offense, meaning that it can be charged as either a misdemeanor or a felony. However, in most cases, it can only be prosecuted as a felony if there is skin-to-skin -skin contact during the assault. Worksman zeroed in on the change in Jane Doe 3's statements, implying that she changed her story to benefit the prosecution. He asked if when she originally told Thompson that there was no skin-to-skin -skin contact, quote, did his jaw drop? Did he say, well, we can't prosecute that, end quote. Jane Doe 3 responded that he did not. Worksman continued with his pointed examination asking, quote, did anybody tell you before your next interview that you've got to get this one right? End quote. She testified that they did not. Jane Doe 3 explained that she was conflating two different incidents and asserted that she originally did not tell the prosecution the full story because she was embarrassed. In response, Mark Worksman quipped, quote, Your story is like the U.S. economy. There was inflation. End quote. The prosecution objected, and it was sustained by Judge Lynch. The defense attorney spent the remainder of his cross-examination focused on Jane Doe 3's continued contact with Weinstein after the alleged sexual assault. He displayed an email chain between Jane Doe 3 and members of the Weinstein Company's publishing branch about her proposal for a book called Naked Massage. The chain started after the alleged assault and went back and forth for approximately six months. Worksman sought to tie Jane Doe 3's sexual encounter with his client to the potential book deal. Quote, You pursued a book deal because that was your end of a bargain for having sexual relations with Mr. Weinstein, correct? End quote. Jane Doe 3 replied, quote, Incorrect. End quote. Worksman continued to hone in on Jane Doe 3's relationship with Weinstein, specifically why she agreed to massage him a second time. In a style of examination that the attorney has used throughout the trial, he presented the witness with a question that assumed an answer, one he knew she would not provide. Quote, he calls for another massage, and you say, buzz off, creep, and hang up, right? End quote. Jane Doe 3 answered no. Worksman then pivoted to Jane Doe 3's arrangement of a meeting between Harvey Weinstein and her boss, Sean Lourdes. 
Quote, Here's a man you said did horrible things to you and deeply traumatized you, but you were still willing to use him to get a meeting with Sean Lourdes. End quote. Jane Doe 3's voice faltered as she responded that she didn't think that she would ever be alone with Weinstein during the meeting. Worksman forged ahead in his line of questioning, inquiring why the woman followed Weinstein up to his hotel room after the meeting ended. Jane Doe 3 broke into tears. She testified, quote, I was scared, and I was embarrassed, and humiliated. Finally, the defense attorney addressed Jane Doe 3's attempt to introduce her friend Dana, the feng shui expert, to Harvey Weinstein. Worksman displayed a photo of Dana on the court TV screen. The woman in the photo appeared to be in her 30s. She had long, wavy brunette hair, a flowy dress, and a big smile. Worksman's use of the photo seemed to convey an unspoken message. Dana was an attractive woman, a woman who Jane Doe 3 would not introduce to her sexual assailant. When Worksman asked why Jane Doe 3 would allow her friend to possibly be alone with Weinstein, she testified that she would not allow it, and also that she did not think Weinstein would be attracted to Dana because she wasn't blonde. On redirect examination, DDA Marlene Martinez attempted to clear up Jane Doe 3's narrative. The prosecutor asked the witness why she gave Weinstein a second massage after the assault. Jane Doe 3 testified, quote, I wanted to get him on recording, admitting to the assault, end quote. Martinez then inquired why Jane Doe 3 gave Weinstein a third massage. The woman replied through tears, quote, I wish I didn't. I was naive. I didn't think he could hurt me. I didn't think what happened was going to happen. I don't know how else to say it, end quote. At the end of Jane Doe 3's examination, she wiped her eyes and quietly left the courtroom. Later in the afternoon, the prosecution called Liz Pears to the stand. Pears was Harvey Weinstein's executive assistant from 2011 to 2013. The witness testified briefly about how emails were dictated at the Weinstein Company and the hierarchy of the office. Following Pears, the prosecution called Bonnie Hung to the stand, who was Weinstein's assistant from 2003 to 2004. Hung featured prominently in Ashley M's testimony, the woman who accused Weinstein of sexually assaulting her in Puerto Rico during the filming of Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Ashley M testified that Bonnie Hung encouraged her to get in a car with herself and Weinstein, saying, quote, don't worry, I'll be with you the whole time. We're just going to talk about future projects, end quote. When Bonnie Hung identified Weinstein in the courtroom, he gave her a small nod. She testified that she did not recall the hotel where the producer stayed in Puerto Rico. And when prosecutors displayed a series of hotels on the court TV screen, she still could not pick it out of the lineup. Hung told the jury that all she remembered about the trip was the ballroom movie set, the drive to the hotel, and the cast dinner. All other details were unclear to the witness, including whether or not she stayed overnight in Puerto Rico. DDA Marlene Martinez displayed a picture of Ashley M and asked if Hung recognized her. Hung testified that she did recognize the woman, but only because of the trial coverage. She stated that she did not personally remember Ashley M. DDA Marlene Martinez tried once more to elicit information from Hung, quote, It's possible you did meet this woman in Puerto Rico, end quote. Hung responded, quote, it's possible, end quote. Martinez continued, quote, possible she was in the car with you, end quote. The witness said once again, quote, it's possible, end quote. There was no cross-examination from the defense. Hung was dismissed and quickly strode out of the courtroom. 
Afterwards, the prosecution called Jane Doe too to the stand, a model and aspiring screenwriter who claims that Weinstein sexually assaulted her after a business meeting. Jane Doe too is represented by Gloria Allred and testified previously in Weinstein's New York trial. We'll cover her testimony in our next episode. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of their trial reports are jury duty correspondents Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder. Molly, Brittany, welcome back. Nice to be back, Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Brittany, let's start with you. Detective Reyes seems to be a more complicated witness than one would expect of the lead investigator in a triple sexual assault trial. Can you give us a bit of insight into the tone and tenor of the prosecution and the defense questioning of this witness? Absolutely. There was a lot of anticipation in Detective Reyes taking the stand, partially because as the original lead detective on the case, she is presumably the person best situated to confirm or deny statements that the victims in this case have made. And as well, the defense used statements that Reyes had made to the victims in his opening argument. You know, originally the defense in this case, and I'm talking about when Masterson's team included Tom Mesereau during preliminary hearings, the defense's argument had much more to do with arguing that the alleged victims were scornful about the Church of Scientology and blaming Danny Masterson for that. But Cohen's argument has much more to do with whether the incidents were consensual and in some cases whether they even happened. And Reyes's statements about warning them not to talk to each other and the idea of cross-contamination is an important part of his case. So I think for both sides, there was a lot riding on her testimony. And Detective Reyes comes in and she was barely able to answer a question on direct examination. In the majority of cases, there was this very predictable pattern. She would say that she didn't remember. And then Mueller tried to refresh her memory either with her report, which she brought and had reviewed, or with a transcript from an interview that she had conducted but had not reviewed. And she looked unprepared as a result. She definitely seemed to be guessing at times. And then Cohen gets up and essentially lays the blame for her testimony at the feet of the prosecution, insinuating that maybe they wanted her to look unprepared. Now, he asked if prosecutors always share a transcript in advance when she testifies in court, and she said not always, but it was her investigation. And it's not unreasonable to think that she's more likely going to lean toward favoring the prosecution. But it was interesting that they were not necessarily presenting her as a competent investigator, not quite quite to the extent that they portrayed Officer Schlegel, but this was not a witness where the prosecution was lobbing softballs. And also, didn't we hear from Jane Doe number two that part of the reason that she and other alleged victims began to discuss their accusations was because they were losing confidence in Detective Reyes and her investigation? Yes. So Detective Reyes has had to come back to finish her testimony. And we heard a bit more today. We're recording this on Tuesday. Detective Reyes is going to come back tomorrow morning. But it sounds like we'll hear a bit about the actions the victims took as a result of the way they felt that Detective Reyes was handling handling the investigation. It's going to be a really limited scope. The judge does not want to go into the internal politics of why Reyes was taken off the case. And she also won't let the defense go deeply into what exactly the victims did or 
are published, but Mueller has introduced an email that Jane Doe 3 sent to Reyes's supervisor. And I think we may hear a little bit more about that and their dissatisfaction when she comes back tomorrow. Got it. Molly, Jane Doe 3, the masseuse, seemed to have a very difficult time on cross-examination. Would you say that's an accurate assessment? That's definitely an accurate assessment. And it's not necessarily because she did a poor job as a witness, but rather because the complexity of her relationship with Weinstein really left her open to a myriad of hard questions from the defense. Well, it raises the question to me whether you think the prosecution has done enough to lay out for the jury how powerful Harvey Weinstein was back in those days. I mean, I remember in the Durst trial that the prosecution went out of its way to communicate to the jury that the decrepit and sickly Robert Durst, who appeared in the courtroom, bore little resemblance to the vibrant and strong younger man, a scion of a real estate empire who killed his wife and later Susan Berman and Morris Black. Do you think that the prosecution should be doing more to remind the jury or inform the jury of how mighty Harvey was at the height of his power and, you know, thereby helping explain why these women might believe that they never stood a chance of getting their stories heard? This is a really great question, and I'm glad you asked it. So in this case, Harvey Weinstein's power is a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, the prosecution can point to his power in the industry as a reason why these women didn't initially come forward. They didn't come forward out of fear that no one would believe them, or if somebody did believe them, that they might face retaliation, so they might be blacklisted in Hollywood or even physically threatened. But on the other hand, The defense is always poised to argue that Weinstein's power is actually what attracted these women to him in the first place. So with Jane Doe's one and two, they're arguing that they made up these allegations against Weinstein because he was the epicenter of the Me Too movement. And they wanted the attention that came with being an accuser to this very powerful man. And with the other Jane Doe's, the defense is arguing that the women had a transactional relationship with Weinstein in which they had consensual sex with him in order to gain access to all of his power. So the more power that Weinstein has, the more the defense can argue, wow, what an attractive man this was to be around. These women would have loved to have the opportunity to be with him, to be invited to movie premieres and to gain Weinstein's contacts in the industry. So I think it's a bit of a tough needle to thread for the prosecution here. But the one thing that vividly reminds me of Durst is that Harvey Weinstein right now is not Harvey Weinstein of 2013. He is thinner. He is gaunt. His color is a bit pasty. He just generally looks unwell. Not as unwell as Durst. I think that's hard to top. The prosecution has been meticulous about having each of the witnesses clarify that at the time that they were allegedly assaulted, Harvey Weinstein was healthier and he was heavier. He was about 250 to 300 pounds. So he was physically imposing. And in many cases, that is a factor these women have cited in why they struggled to escape him when they were assaulted. Fascinating. Brittany, what was your sense of the impact on the jury of the testimony of Jordan Ladd and Joanne Berger? 
Yeah, I thought Jordan Ladd was great. She was in and out, and she basically did what she came there to do. She spoke with Jane Doe 2 shortly after the incident, and she corroborated her testimony. Now, when Jane Doe 2 testified, she started to say that Jordan Ladd's reaction to her disclosure was different than the other people she talked to because Jordan Ladd wasn't a Scientologist. And unfortunately, we didn't hear much more about that or why that was significant. But essentially, I think she made an already credible witness seem all the more credible, plus they're not even friends anymore. So it's not like she was just trying to help out a friend. I think when Cohen asked if she could corroborate specific details, and she said that Jane Doe 2 never mentioned those things, that briefly seemed like a win for the defense. But then on redirect, she explained that it was a very short conversation, and she didn't really go into details. But what was said supported what Jane Doe 2 had testified to. I think Joanne Berger, on the other hand, came across a bit more like she was trying to help her daughter's case, which of course is very understandable. She said that a lot of the peripheral details were cloudy, but that she remembered certain specific things. And those things were things that Jane Doe 2 had definitely mentioned in her testimony. But as cross-examination went on, I got the sense that she was there really to support her daughter's testimony. Well, I was particularly struck by her explanation of why she had difficulty understanding what happened to her daughter as rape. How did all of that land in the courtroom? Right. I mean, I think it sounds surprising because today we hear that and it does sound so antiquated, but she's not the first person to say that. Jane Doe too said something similar as to why she initially didn't label it as rape. And I think in her explanation, it did make sense. You know, she's a little bit older and it's possible that because she came of age at a time when the public understanding of what constitutes rape is quite different than what it is now, that that could account for her change of opinion. Also, I mean, and this is something that was not explored, but she had been involved in Scientology and Jane Doe too spoke a lot about how she had certain problems, you know, with anxiety, wanted to take medication for that. And that was something that her mother absolutely would not allow. And it really sounded like the reason for that is because Scientology does not allow that. And so it wasn't explored, but I think that there's an inference that part of the reason might have had to do with her views based in Scientology. Got it. Molly, what were your impressions of the testimonies of the assistants, Liz Perez and Bonnie Hung? How did they serve the prosecution's case? And do you think they were effective witnesses? So honestly, I think that everyone was a bit baffled by the prosecution's choice to fly in these assistants from New York for what ended up being some rather empty testimony. You know, we heard Weinstein's former assistants are going to testify and all the reporters got pretty excited about that. And really, they gave very little details. I do know that the prosecution intended to ask Liz Perez about a jacket that Weinstein allegedly left at the Mr. C Hotel after he allegedly raped Jane Doe 1, but Judge Lynch did not let them examine on that subject. So I think that that may be why we were left with a rather vacuous set of questions and we were all rather puzzled about why she was up there. 
Bonnie Hung was a mystery. So she was the assistant to Harvey Weinstein when he allegedly sexually assaulted Ashley M. in Puerto Rico when she was filming Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. And she, Bonnie Hung, allegedly had this role where she essentially escorted Ashley M. up to the hotel room with Weinstein. And so we were all expecting, we being the reporters in the gallery, were expecting to hear some testimony about Bonnie Hung meeting Ashley M at the very least, but she said she had no memory of the woman. Uh, She recognized her from the trial coverage, but she had no memory of her whatsoever. So it was very perplexing as to why the prosecution brought her in, other than perhaps they were trying to bring her in before the defense, but it raised more questions than it answered. Wow. Well, before we finish, is there anything else either of you would like to catch us up on? What should we be looking out for in the days ahead? Brittany, let's start with you. Absolutely. So yesterday when the jury was out and the attorneys went over motions, Judge Olmedo ruled that Jane Doe 4 can testify. She is not part of the charges in this case, but she is allowed to testify about one of her incidents with Masterson. And those are likely coming up sometime this week. Molly, anything on Weinstein? Yes. So we have Mel Gibson coming to testify at some point in time as a fresh complaint witness for Jane Doe 3. We have no idea when it's going to happen. We also have no idea when Jennifer Seibel Newsom, Jane Doe 4, is going to testify, but we know it is going to happen. We also have yet to find out if the prosecution is going to drop the charges affiliated with Jane Doe 5, who has not been brought up by the prosecution yet in this trial. So we'll be looking for that. The defense keeps pressuring the judge to make the prosecution make that determination, but we have not seen a final ruling on that matter. Well, Brittany, Molly, thanks as always for your insights. And we, of course, look forward to your next round of reports. Have a great week. You too, Carrie. Thanks, Carrie. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Join us on our next installment as we hear more from Molly and Brittany about the progress of the prosecution's case in both of these sexual assault trials. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was reported and written by Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.